Why don't we, uh, before we get into the Word, just take a second and uh, commit this time to the Lord. Lord, I just ask that you would free us right now of distraction. I pray that you would uh, help us to keep our attention on you, what you're saying to us, how you want to love us through your Word. pray for myself that you'd help me to keep my attention focused, not to be distracted, to be able to choose the words that will express the ideas that uh, that uh, I have through the study. Pray for each one here that you would fill them with your spirit, that they might be responsive to, uh, to your word. Lord, again, we do all this because it's our desire to draw closer to you, to know you more intimately, and to, to just worship you for who you are. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at a little miracle. Um, actually, it doesn't get a lot of attention. In fact, the, the, the circumstances, the situation in which this miracle takes place uh, are described in every one of the Gospels, but only one of the Gospels, Luke, in, in chapter 22, even mentions the miracle itself. It's a little thing surrounded by an almost overwhelmed by a big event. But it's those little things that tell us so much about our Lord, even tell us a lot about ourselves. One of the things that this little miracle shows us is that the little things do count. What we do under pressure counts. So often we excuse our selfishness or our destructive behavior by, by the fact that we're under pressure. We, we, we look at the flare-up or, or a blow struck or, or a cruel thing said as, as somehow an, a, an aberration, something that wasn't really us. It was, it was the pressure we were under. But the fact is, that was us, that was me, that was you. And what we should, should see by the way we act under pressure is just how vulnerable we really are, how weak we really are, what our true condition is. You see, we've, most of us have what it takes to coast under normal circumstances, but none of us have what it takes when life gets steep. And for some of us, life gets steep a lot. Another thing, this, um, this miracle involves Peter, and is, is so often the case when Peter's involved. This miracle shows us how prone we are to screw up. Screwing up is a universal trait of fallen humanity. I was sitting around a couple years back with some pastors, and somehow the conversation got around to true confessions, and we started talking about ways that we really screwed up, or things that we got ourselves into which were terribly embarrassing. So I thought I'd share a couple of those with you. I remember them all very well because they've become my nightmares, (laughs) things that I, I know I could do so easily. One guy who will remain nameless to protect the guilty. He was doing a wedding for a young man he knew for many years. In fact, all the young man's life. In fact, he knew him real well, and he knew all of his former girlfriends. Unfortunately, when they got to the vows, you can guess what happened. He called the bride by the name of the groom's ex-girlfriend. Ever since I heard that, I write the name of both the bride and the groom on the top page of everyone of my wedding ceremonies. David Roper was telling about how his father, Harlan Roper, I don't know if you knew, his father was a pastor as well. 
Well, his father did a funeral at the, uh, at the funeral home. And then he hated to ride in processions. They just took so much time. They were slow. Just a big ordeal. So he would run off and do some errands and then meet him at the gravesite. Well, he ran off and did some, some errands, hurried back to the gravesite just in time, did the service there. Everybody was looking at him weird. They were looking at him strange. We got home that night thinking he did an okay job, and he got a phone call from the family for whom he had done the funeral. And they said, where were you? He was at the wrong gravesite. He buried the wrong person. Another guy, another pastor has a, a couple of memorable screw-ups worth mentioning. This guy was preaching in a church he had never been to before. And he was running late. In fact, by the time he got to the church, the service had already started. So he rushed in and quickly and quietly worked his way up to the platform and took his seat. In this church, the people that were participating in the service would sit in a row in the back of the platform. The song was going on. The the congregation was singing a hymn. But as soon as he got up there, the singing just kind of stopped. The song leader looked at him and said, Excuse me, may I help you? He was in the wrong church. This same guy was speaking at a fairly large conference, and he was using a lapel mic like this one, a remote mic, so that he could walk around and wave his arms and do all the things that speakers and conferences like to do. Well, on a break, he went to the restroom and unfortunately forgot to turn off (laughs) his lapel mic. And before the sound man could turn the sound off, the whole audience got an earful. My, uh, my personal favorite is a man by the name of Dr. Cronk. I don't know how many of you have ever heard him. He's an elderly, very dignified gentleman, a doctor of theology. And he was sitting up on the platform while the man who was to introduce him was praying. And he was, he was praying as well. He had his, his elbows on his knees. He was sitting down. And like every pastor does, last thing before they approached the podium, he checked his zipper. And it was a good thing, too, because his zipper was down. So before the prayer was over, he quickly got it up, which was great, except that when he rose to approach the podium, he could only get this far. He had had zipped his tie into his zipper. (laughs) It's probably not fair to uh, tell on everyone else without uh, telling on myself and giving... One of my many most embarrassing moments, actually it was an embarrassing half hour, and uh, many of you were there, so it's not like I'm telling you anything new. Before we built this building, we were still having services over in the fireside room. We didn't have a podium, you just held your notes in your Bible like Brian does, or put them on a little music stand. Well, I was about five minutes into the sermon, in the second uh, service, when the zipper on my new pants let go. It didn't come down. Little thing is at the top. It just let go. And here I was, nowhere to hide. I couldn't uh, (laughs) preach like this, so I just went ahead, just hoping nobody would notice. I got finished with the service, and I went up to, I think it was was Wayne Yamamoto, and I said, could you see it? And he went, oh. (laughs) Now you know why I insist on a podium when I preach. Well, like I said, we all screw up. Maybe pastors are a little more prone than most, but we all screw up. And it's often the time when we think we're doing the right thing that we screw up the worst. 
when we think we're doing the right thing and disciplining our, 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 our kid, but we overreact, we come down too harshly and we, we, we hurt their sense of dignity and we alienate them. Or we want to see our, our, our marriage become more intimate, more close, but we become too aggressively critical, leave things worse than they were. Or maybe uh, we wanted to finally share the gospel with that person that we knew we should and we come on like gangbusters and blow them away, chase them away from the gospel. Often it's, it's when we want to do the right thing that we end up screwing up. But fortunately, one of the things that this uh, little miracle tells us, shows us, is that Jesus can fix our screw-ups. The uh, miracle we're going to look at is the healing of Malchus's ear. It's in chapter 22 of Luke. I'm going to start reading about verse 47. What I'd like to do is just read through uh, just the bare facts, just this uh, account of the healing. Verse 47 of, of Luke 22. While he was still speaking, behold, a multitude came, and the one called Judas, excuse me, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And a certain one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Well, that's the story. What I'd like to do is to go back through the story and fill it in a little more so you get more of a feel for what was going on, more of an idea of what actually happened. What I'll do is I'll take some of the facts, some of the quotes from the other gospel accounts, because they all describe the, the, this, uh, and then fill it in. Then what I'd like to do is stop and take a closer look at the principles involved. Take a look at Peter, the hacker, and Malchus, the hacky, and Jesus, the one who puts it all back together. In the uh, synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this incident follows two very significant events. First of all, there's Jesus' warning to the disciples. He had been teaching them on humility. And then he says, listen, you guys are going to desert me. It's going to happen. And Peter's response to that is, no, Lord, maybe these guys will. I won't. I'm ready to, to go to prison for you. I'm ready to die for you. And that's when Jesus tells Peter, Peter, before this night's over, before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. The other event is the, uh, the prayer time that Jesus takes in the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes Peter and James and John, and they go a little bit away from the other disciples. And Jesus sets them up to pray. He says, please pray for me. I'm really hurting right now. I've got to do something I don't want to do, and I'm struggling. So pray for me, and pray for yourselves. See, Jesus knew things were going to get intense that night. And he knew they needed to be praying. But then he went off a little ways farther and prayed while the disciples slept. Three times he goes back to wake them up and say, No, pray, please pray. Well, the third time that he goes back and wakes them up, the posse that has come to arrest him arrives. And that's where we picked up our story in verse 47. John tells us that there was a Roman cohort as well as some Jewish policemen 
some chief priests and some elders. Well, technically, a Roman cohort is about 600 heavily armed soldiers. I think the term, the term is probably being used loosely here. Um, but even so, there were probably several hundred heavily armed men. And Jesus sees these people coming, and he goes out to meet them. He asks them, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus, the Nazarene. And Jesus says, I'm he. And for some reason, that takes them back. They start to step back, and they begin tripping on each other, and almost all of them fall to the ground. And Jesus says again, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. He says, I am he. And since that's who you're looking for, let these others go. At this point, Judas, who was standing next to Jesus, kisses him on the cheek. And Jesus stops and sadly looks at him. And he says, Judas, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Then he calls him friend. He says, friend, do what you came for. This time... The rest of the disciples have have caught up with what's going on. They're gathered around, and one of them says, Lord, should we fight with our swords? Earlier in the text, we're told that they had two swords among all of them. And so they say, shall we fight with our swords? And at that point, uh, Mark tells us that some of the Jewish policemen grabbed Jesus to arrest him. And that's too much for Peter to take. Peter was one of the only two disciples with a sword. In fact, it wasn't much of a sword. It was what's called a short sword, kind of like a very large dagger, your your basic Rambo knife. And Peter comes in swinging that they would touch his Lord. He chops off Malchus' ear. Now, we know that it was Peter, not from this Luke account. John's the only one that tells us it was Peter. He's also the one that tells us that the name of the man whose ear was cut off, was Malchus. And I think possibly the reason is that the other Gospels were written much earlier, and they didn't want to get Peter in trouble. But by the time that John was written, there was no problem with that. There was no concern for that. So he mentions Peter by name. And maybe he mentions Malchus by name, because tradition has it that Malchus became a Christian, later associated with the the community of believers. And people who read that could walk up to him and say, did that really happen? He could say, yeah, this ear right here. Cut it right off. So anyway, Peter comes in swinging. It says both Luke and uh, John tell us that he, he cut off Malchus's right ear, which probably means he was coming from behind him because Peter was right-handed. Either Malchus ducked pretty radically or he was one of the guys who had a hold of Jesus. Peter came up behind and smacked him in the side of the head trying to chop his head off. When that happens... Apparently, everyone was stunned. They look at this hick fisherman who would attack an entire Roman cohort with a Rambo knife. And they're probably looking at him thinking, is this really happening? And Peter's probably thinking, did I really do that? And Malchus is holding his ear. But apparently, they let go of Jesus momentarily. Jesus immediately says, stop, no more of this. And then he turns to Peter And he says, put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword will die by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That's about 72,000 angels. How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? Put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the father has given me. Shall I not drink it? 
Then Jesus turned to the incredulous Malchus, gently reaches out, tenderly touches his ear, and heals him. Next, Jesus turns to the crowd that was there to arrest him. And he says to them, he says, Have you come out with swords and clubs as against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple, and you did not arrest me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. And at this point, they took Jesus into custody. Uh, All of the accounts tell us the disciples fled. They ran away. Peter kind of lagged behind the crowd. He ran away, but then he followed them at a distance. And finally, poor Peter, confused, hurting, ends up denying his Lord three times. The last time he was asked by Malchus' cousin, John tells us. He says, no, I never knew him. And the cock crowed. Well, that's, that's the story. Now let's take a look at the people involved and why it happened the way it happened and how it happened. Let's start by looking at Peter. You've got to love Peter. And the guy's got guts. He doesn't have a lot of brains, but he's got guts. And he is so transparent. You can see right through him. And when you look hard enough, you see through him and you see yourself clear as day. See, Peter, at this point, was full of confidence. He had seen what Jesus could do. He could see, he'd seen how much Jesus could handle. Jesus had even used him for a few miracles. So he's feeling good. Things were looking up. He's feeling confident. He figures he can handle it. That sense of self-reliance set him up. And a self-confidence, self-dependence are sure precursors to a fall. They virtually guarantee it. Jesus had warned Peter to prepare, to get ready, to pray. And Peter's response was, Hey, I don't need that. I'm ready. No problem. Bring it on. The fact was, obviously, he wasn't ready. He said, it'll never happen to me. Maybe these other guys, but it'll never happen happened to me. When Jesus took him aside for him to pray, because he knew that's exactly what Peter needed to be doing, Peter snoozed. Again, he didn't feel the need. He thought he was ready. But he wasn't. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. As Brian Fisher has said, God is not terribly impressed with our dedication and commitment. Now, we may be impressed, and others often are, but God sees us clearly enough. He knows us well enough to know how weak, how unable to keep our resolve we really are. He knows that when the pressure is there, if it's high enough, we will capitulate. He knows us through and through. Peter's commitment was noble, but it was a commitment of the flesh. It was not, as it should have been, a confident dependence on the Father. Now, we're not called to be uh, weak, quivering, cowering wimps, but misplaced confidence only makes us dangerous, like it did Peter. Peter should have been confident, but not in himself. He should have been confident in his father's adequacy. And that kind of confidence 
comes only as it did for Jesus, with time spent with the Father, knowing Him, experiencing Him. I uh, have yet to meet a Christian man caught up in adultery who didn't think this could never happen to me. You know, most people who have abused their children have made strong resolve that they would never do that. How many of us have woken up in the morning, awakened in the morning, determined we're not going to yell at the kids today? What young Christian couple starts dating even thinks they might sleep together? Who goes into a marriage even considering the possibility that it will end in divorce. But these things happen. They all happen. It's usually the thing that we swore that we would never do, the thing that we would never say that we end up doing and saying. This should not come as a surprise to us. We should not be shocked thinking, oh, this, this can't be. This, this is, is somehow a mistake. It'll never happen again. Realize God is not surprised. He knows us. He knows we're dust. He's not uh, even, even really disappointed, somehow put off by the fact that we're weak and that we usually have inflated ideas of our own fortitude. Again, it comes as no surprise to him. He'll set about to show us, just as he did Peter, that our only hope for wisdom, our only hope for courage and fortitude is to trust Him, is to depend on Him. Well, unfortunately, all that uh, Jesus' warnings did for Peter in this case were to make him more determined than ever to show his stuff, to show that he was made of better stuff than Jesus thought, Jesus thought he was, to show his courage, to show his resolve and his fortitude. Peter uh, really shows his love for the Lord. But unfortunately, that's dimmed greatly by the fact that his motivation was probably every bit as much a desire to preserve his own reputation, his own honor. He wanted to show, like I said, Jesus that he was made of better stuff. He perhaps was even wanting to make up for the embarrassment of having fallen asleep on Jesus, but the result is disastrous. He almost destroys himself and all of the other disciples as well. He draws his sword and attacks, giving those soldiers every justification they would have needed to wipe out all of the disciples. You know, his, his heart maybe was good, but he was full-hearted. He was uncontrolled. And his response jeopardized everything. If Jesus hadn't intervened and healed Malchus's ear, the entire future leadership of the infant church would have been wiped out. You know, the soldiers in Tiananmen Square needed no more provocation than this to wipe out all of those students, the future of China. Peter's act was giving an excuse for persecution. He was acting like a terrorist. 
And if he had gone unchecked, a legitimate case could have been made against Jesus that he was the leader of a revolutionary or a terrorist band. In fact, at his trial, Jesus says, I am not a revolutionary. If I were a revolutionary, my followers would be fighting, but they're not. So you know I'm not a revolutionary. You see, if he had been, if Peter had gone unchecked, the state would have had a legitimate interest in putting down the rebellion. That's the job of the state. And so Jesus' death would have been justified. Christians will be persecuted. We will be hated for the truth's sake, just as Jesus was and just as Jesus said we would. But let's not give them any more excuse. Let's not give any more reason than the truth of our gospel and the effects of our love. Again, we may be persecuted. We may be hated. Let's let it be for the right reasons. I remember the movie Ben-Hur. It's a great movie, a classic. But at the end, Ben-Hur hears that the rumor that the Christians are burning Rome. And he thinks the Christians are finally fighting back. So he picks up a torch and he starts lighting things on fire. Well, his heart was right, but his head was all wrong. He wanted to identify with the Christians and all he did was gave legitimacy to their persecution. We can be whipped up into standing tall for God against the the tide of sinful humanism, against the worldliness of our society. And we end up, instead of grieving, being humbled by the sins of our people, we end up charging ahead flailing away and leaving ears scattered over the landscape. What we need to be doing is to be facing this, to be praying, to be facing the pain of it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. There he's talking about our response to sin. We've become arrogant rather than mourning, rather than facing the pain of it in prayer. We want to show our courage. We want to show the stuff we're made out of. We want to save our reputation. So we charge out and we chop off ears. We charge out and we screw things up. Rather than listening to God's agenda and gently, lovingly speaking the truth. Again, we may be hated, but let it be for the right reasons. Truth and love. Peter got this message. He understood this later. In fact, the entire book of 1 Peter, which he wrote, is on how to handle persecution, how to handle these types of situations. And let me read just a few verses from chapter 3 of that, that book, just to give you the feel that Peter did get the message. He says, To sum up, let all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as your Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you. Yet with gentleness and reverence. 
and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. See, what he's describing here is exactly what he saw Jesus do that night. He saw Jesus stand tall, to stand on the truth, to stand up for what was true. But he also saw him do it with gentleness and tenderness. Consideration for those there. That's where the healing of Malchus comes in. Let's take a look at Jesus. Let's start by going back to the beginning. Jesus prayed. Peter slept. See, both knew that they were about to go through an ordeal. Jesus had told Peter over and over that this was going to happen. But Peter's response was, no problem. I can handle it. I'll take care of it myself. But he couldn't. If anybody should have been able to say, hey, no problem, I'll take care of it myself, Jesus should have. But he doesn't. You see, he knew that even he must depend on his Father for the wisdom, for the strength, for the fortitude to get through these types of situations. Even he had to depend on the Father. This is no fault. This is no failure. This is just who we are. This is just reality. This is the way we were created. This is dealing with life realistically. It's a matter of dependence. So, Jesus goes to talk to God, to tell Him that He really doesn't want to go through this. He asks God, hey, if it's at all possible, change things so I don't have to suffer. Jesus didn't like to suffer. Sometimes we don't realize that, we don't think of that. He didn't like to suffer any more than you or I like to suffer. And so he prayed, God, let's find a way out of this if there is one. Let's make it so I don't have to suffer. There's nothing wrong with us going to God and telling him honestly what we feel about what's happening in our lives. There's nothing wrong with us asking him to change things. But notice where Jesus got by the end of his conversation with the Father. He said, not my will, but yours, God. I trust you. You see, for Jesus, the struggle was already over. For Jesus, he had already been through the hard part. He had struggled through all of this with God. He had struggled through it with the Father. It was hard It hurt, but by the end, he knew that his father was good. He knew that his father loved him. He knew that his father would provide the strength necessary to get him through it. He knew that his father was in control and would bring all things together to work for good. He trusted his father, therefore the struggle was over. He'd set his dependence firmly on the Father. Now, there may be a lot of things in your life that God is calling you to right now that you just have to honestly say, that's not my will. I don't want to do it. I don't want to deal with it. It may not be your will to truly love your wife. 
You just don't feel like it. That's, that's too hard. It's too painful. It may not be your will to stop abusing alcohol or drugs. You're not sure if you can. You're not even sure if you want to. It may not be your will to be self-controlled sexually. Or maybe to give yourself in ministry. Or to confront that brother who is in sin. Or whatever it is that God's will for you is right now. Well, the only thing I can do is recommend Jesus' example. Throw yourself on your Father's mercy. Come to Him. Tell Him what you feel. Tell Him you feel afraid. Or, you, or, you, or tell Him your feelings of dread. Or your feelings of inadequacy or repulsion. Tell Him your will. But then take a good look at Him. Remember who He is. Face the fact that your Father is good. That your Father is smart. That He's in control and that He's absolutely committed to bringing it all together to work for good, for the best, for great, for something wonderful. When you've worked through things all that way, when you've come to this point, then you can say, like Jesus, not my will, knowing the Father has heard your will, not my will, but yours, God. I trust you. And at that point, he will provide you with the wisdom, with the fortitude, with the courage and the strength to walk through absolutely anything like a man or like a woman. When the actual arrest comes, the moment of truth for Jesus, the struggle, like I said, is already over. He's calm. In spite of the fact that he is about to die, he knows he's going to die, he's still able to keep his attention where it belongs, to keep his focus on loving the people that are there. You see, he knows his father is in control, and that leaves him free to focus on loving the people there. In fact, he keeps things there from, from de- de- uh, disintegrating, degenerating into, into chaos. He actually orchestrates his own arrest, not because he wanted to encourage it, but out of love and concern for the people there, he wanted to keep things cool so people didn't get hurt, so people didn't get killed. He was acting out of love. And again, he could do this not because he was in control, because he was in charge. It was because he knew that his father was in control. Therefore, he could keep his attention, his focus, where it belonged. And that was loving the people that are there. Loving the people that were involved in the situation. The same thing is true of our lives. We cannot control the circumstances. We cannot control situations. But we can trust the one who is in control. If we've taken the time to get to know him. If we really see him like he is. Well, this is where the healing of Malchus's ear comes in. Jesus cares about this man who has come to arrest him and to take him to his death. He stops in the middle of everything and heals this guy. What Jesus is doing is showing us his father's character coming through. You see, God loves his enemies. 
It causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And the way we honor God, the way we show our loyalty to God, is that we love our enemies. Loving the enemies of God, the enemies of the gospel, those who are opposed, does not show disloyalty or betrayal to God. It shows that we are His sons. Who here has tried to bless their least favorite newspaper columnist? Who has, has, has tried to show love to the operator of an abortion clinic or owner of a, a pornography shop? And this doesn't mean that we endorse them or what they're doing. And it doesn't mean that we stay silent, that we keep quiet when we see something that is being done wrong against us or against others. Or that we don't use the, the st- political structures and the avenues that our society has set up for correcting wrongs in our society. But it does mean that our decisions, our actions, our words come out of a genuine love. Not out of a sense of self-protection or a sense of pride or fear. We've got the privilege, knowing that our Father is in control, to focus on loving the people involved. We've got the privilege of really keeping our attention where it belongs, loving ally and opponent alike. Use the avenues that God or that society has set up for redress. Jesus, when they came to arrest him, first clarified that their warrant was only against him and that they had to let the others go. Then he confronted them with the inappropriateness of arresting him at night when they could have arrested him any day at the temple. But when they finally do arrest him, He doesn't resist. He doesn't try to hurt them or harm them. He tries to bless them. He helps them out. Later on in his trial, Jesus points out the illegality of asking him to testify against himself. That was just as illegal in that society as it is in ours. And they demanded him to give testimony against himself. And he tells them, go find witnesses, like the law says. And when they strike him, he says, that's wrong. But he doesn't strike back. You see, Jesus spoke the truth. He stood on his rights. But he didn't do so in an angry or combative way. He held his ground. He did not back down. But he didn't try to retaliate for the wrongness of it all. He remained calm and straightforward knowing all the while that his father was in charge. Well, are you overwhelmed by the sin and the corruption of our society? Are you genuinely angered by the injustices and the lies? Well, you're right to be. Wrong is wrong. Now take that and struggle through it with your father. Talk to him about how you feel about these things. But then also take a good look at him. And remember that he's good. And that he's smart. That he's in control. And once your perspective is right, then 
Go out and speak out. Say what is wrong. But don't go hacking off ears. Heal ears. Pray for those who will then persecute you. Bless them. Don't curse them. Again, it's our privilege to act out of love, to keep our focus on loving the people involved. Sure, take advantage of the avenues that our society provides for the redress of wrongs. Take advantage of your rights as citizens. Don't back down. But don't strike back either. Don't try to retaliate for the wrongness of it all. Remember, you've got the privilege of acting out of love rather than self-protection or fear or pride. You can remain calm and straightforward knowing all the while that your father is in charge. Or are you going through injustice at home? Is your... Um, do you have a, a, a physically or emotionally abusive spouse? Or maybe an abusive teenager? Or are your parents treating you with disrespect, degrading you? Are you going through trouble at work, being treated unfairly on the job? Well, wrong is wrong. Take it to your father. Struggle through it with him. Tell him how you feel. And once you've worked through it, take a good look at him. Remember, he's smart and he's good and he's in control. And then speak out. Say what is wrong. But don't go hacking off ears. Heal ears. Pray for that spouse. Pray for that child. Pray for that person at work. Or that parent. Again, you've got the opportunity to bless them. You have the privilege of acting out of love. Now, sometimes that love will have to be tough. You'll have to do some, some uh, fairly radical things, some difficult things, some dramatic moves. You may have to separate yourself from that spouse for a while. You may have to put that teenager into a clinic. You may have to quit that job. Well, don't back down. But don't strike back either. Don't try to retaliate for the wrongness of it all. Remember, you have the privilege of acting out of love, not out of self-protection or fear or pride or anger or anything else. You're doing what is right because you know your father is in charge. He's in control. Therefore, you're free to focus on the people, to love them and do what's best. All the while, again, knowing your father is in charge. Well... Uh, we're out of time, and we've got Malchus to talk about, but fortunately we don't know much about Malchus, so there's not much to say. All we know is that he was hurt badly by an over-aggressive Christian. I'm sure some people here have been hurt badly by an over-aggressive Christian. You may have been hurt. Maybe it was a relative who, when they first came to the Lord, were so enthusiastic and excited that they just climbed all over you made you feel like you were a failure somehow that you were screwed up and it hurt or maybe you just have seen how insensitive christians can be how we go in and hack off an ear and then smile and walk on our way let me read a poem from ruth graham bell i knew a malchus once 
severely wounded by Peter's sword, crazed by anger, dazed by pain, he thrust aside with awful pride that gentle hand whose touch alone could make him whole again. Have Jesus touched me? Hell, he hissed. Twas his disciple swung the sword, aiming at my neck and missed. I want no part of Peter's Lord. Strong Savior Christ, so oft repelled, for rash disciples blamed. Poor wounded fools by pride compelled to go on living maimed. Well, we know that the real Malchus did let Jesus heal him. And if you've been hurt, please let Jesus heal you. He would love to. That's his desire. Tradition tells us that Malchus later or became a Christian and later joined the community of believers actually led by Peter himself. The two became brothers in Christ, loving each other. And I guess that's the last thing that this little miracle shows us. That God, that Jesus is able to take our screw-ups and do something wonderful. To make something good out of them. Those of us who've been Christians for very long at all have lopped off a few ears. And if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus has a pension for healing them, we'd probably have all given up and crawled into a hole. But that's what God is good at. That's what He loves to do, to take the worst situations imaginable and make them the best that could be. That's what He did in the the resurrection. That's His forte. I'd like to conclude just by reading a brief story, if you'll bear with me, out of Chuck Colson's book, Loving God. It's a great book. But this story just exemplified how God continues to do this today. He continues to take horrible situations and make something wonderful. He continues to take a Malchus and a Peter and bring them together through his love in Christ. Let me just read this briefly. After speaking to more than 200 inmates in the auditorium for a prison fellowship seminar, I asked the warden to let us visit death row. I knew things were tense there because Stephen Judy had just been executed. But I wanted to see two Christian inmates with whom I'd been corresponding. The warden agreed and invited a group of our volunteers to come along as well. So about 20 of us made our way through the maze of concrete cell blocks to the double set of barred doors that led into the most despairing of all places, death row. The end of the line where men live for years from appeal to appeal. The only way out is a new trial or death. The warden opened the individual cell doors, and one by one the men drifted out, slowly mixing with our volunteers and gathering in a circle in the walkway. I was especially glad to to meet Richard Moore, whose wife had written me such moving letters. And James... Excuse me. James Brewer, a young black man who, though seriously ill with kidney disease, was a powerful witness to the others on death row. Whether his death would come swiftly by several thousand volts of electricity or slowly by uremic poisoning, James was at perfect peace with God, and his warm smile showed it. Nancy Honeytree, the talented gospel singer who often goes with us into the prisons, played the guitar and sang a few songs. I spoke briefly, then we all joined hands and sang Amazing Grace. Nowhere do the words of that hymn have richer meaning than among a group of society's despised outcasts, condemned to die for the most awful crimes. My schedule was extremely tight, 
So after we finished Amazing Grace, we said our goodbyes and began filing out. We were crowded into the caged area between the two massive gates when we noticed that one volunteer had stayed back and was with James Brewer in his cell. I went to get the man because the warden could not operate the gates until we had all cleared out. I'm sorry, we have to leave, I said, looking nervously at my watch, knowing a plane stood waiting at a nearby airstrip to fly me to Indianapolis to meet with Governor Orr. The volunteer, short white man in his early 50s, was standing shoulder to shoulder with Brewer. The prisoner was holding his Bible open while the other man appeared to be reading a verse. Oh, yes, the volunteer looked up. Give us just a minute, please. This is important, he added softly. No, I'm sorry, I snapped. I can't keep the governor waiting. We must go. I understand, the man said, still speaking softly. But this is important. You see, I'm Judge Clement. I'm the man who sentenced James here to die. But now he's my brother, and we want a minute to pray together. I stood frozen in the cell doorway. It didn't matter who I kept waiting. Before me were two men. One was powerless, the other powerful. One was black, the other white. One had sentenced the other to death. Anywhere other than the kingdom of God, that inmate might have killed that judge with his bare hands, or wanted to anyway. Now they were one, their faces reflecting an indescribable expression of love as they prayed together. Let's pray. Lord, we do worship you as the God of miracles, as the one who can take the worst and make the best, who can take our screw-ups and do something great with them. Lord, teach us to love like you have, to trust you enough to not become overwhelmed with fear, not become preoccupied with trying to gain control of situations, but to keep our focus where we're we're free to keep it, on loving the people involved. Help us to bless. Help us to be healers, not those who inflict the wounds. Lord, we can only do that as we know you and as we really grow in confidence that you are good and that you're smart, that you're in control. Help us to know that, to spend the time with you so that we come to know you, that we come to know that, so that we can trust you, so that we can be used by you to heal. Lord, that's our desire. Thank you for your word that shows us your character, that shows us your resources. Lord, we want them. We want your character. We want your resources. We just praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your wisdom. We praise you for your power. In your son's name. Amen.